Good morning. This is Radio Three. Now, Carol Mann introduces Part Five of our summer lecture series, My Matters. Good morning, and welcome to the fifth episode of Mind Matters, our series of abridged public talks. I'm Carol Meng. Today we'll be attending a very down-to-earth philosophy class with Professor Philip Buckley from McGill University in Canada. In this lecture held recently by the Hang Seng University of Hong Kong, Professor Buckley discusses different philosophical views on how we experience art. Some people believe that art has objective qualities, like beauty, while others argue that our experience of art are subjective and influenced by our individual taste and cultural backgrounds. But Professor Buckley suggests that we look at aesthetic experience as a type of meaning that is neither completely objective nor completely subjective. We're now bringing you the public lecture, Art and Design. We wanted to talk about some standard views in the philosophy of art about aesthetic experience, and one of the things I'm claiming, and so again, this is very generally. Obviously, a lot of these views are much more complex than I'm making them here, but um, I, I would say you know we we can characterize, maybe caricaturize a little bit too much. I admit that um, the way in which the history of philosophy has treated aesthetic experience. And I suggest that you know we can kind of divide this into two poles, two extremes. You know, on the one hand, there is the objective side. There is an artwork which is a special sort of thing which sets it apart from other types of things. It has particular properties, the properties that belong to an artwork. Um, often we 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 might make them very general beauty and. Even everyday objects, then we can say, "Oh, that object is almost an artwork." And this is where design gets very interesting. Is you know where you say, "Oh, that's a beautiful chair," you know, but you don't think it should go in the museum. These categories we use often, you know, are are themselves not sharp and kind of fuzzy. But when we say that, we have in the back of our mind there's some sort of objective set of qualities. That an artwork has, and maybe everyday objects share them to some, and maybe not. You know, a painting clearly is an artwork. Now, again, we can talk about all sorts of different theories of painting, but what I'm trying to emphasize is that often in our everyday discourse, we have this sense: an artwork is a particular type of object, and it can be accounted for by its objective characteristics. So it has these certain properties. Or it's the objective expression of an artist's creative project. So the artist has an idea, and it gets objectively expressed in this thing called, you know, an artwork. Um, on the other pole, on the other side, we have this, uh, you know, so-called subjective side. Um, it is claimed that every work of art is experienced differently. Right, depending on a variety of contextual factors, ranging from individual taste to cultural context. So again, it doesn't sound crazy, 
on the outset. We use this a lot. We, we experience this a lot. You go to another culture, you find certain things, and you just don't find them aesthetically pleasing because you grew up with a different aesthetic. I mean, you can even think about food in this way. And certain types of food just don't appeal to, to other people. Now, as a very advanced phenomenologist trying to be open to the complexity of everyday life, I love every type of food. Uh, so, you know, I'm always willing to try. But as you know, some people are very picky. I just don't like this. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. Um, and so we kind of, we kind of think then that taste or aesthetic experience, a positive experience of meaning is somehow subjectively constructed. So not, not the objective properties of the food, but the subjective experience of those objective properties, right? So that becomes, these are kind of the two poles is quite obviously people disagree. <laughs> so again, I gave the example of food. Um, uh, people disagree on the aesthetic experience or the meaning of a particular artwork. So everyone has this experience. And I often give my students advice, be very careful who you go to a museum with. You know, very dangerous to go on a first or second date to a museum because, of course, you find you have these deep disagreements. You know, so look at this beautiful painting. It's kind of, you know, I don't like it at all. No, 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 no. You know, don't you see it? No. So this is just a very standard experience. And the more you articulate objective the less the person likes it, you know, then you start to become overbearing, you know, it's like, you've got to see it, you know, and then the person starts to think, I don't really like this person very much because, you know, they want me to see the thing that they see, but I don't see what they see. So this is a very standard everyday experience. And yet somehow philosophers have frequently just tried to overcome this and say, you know, well, we'll just account for all these variations somehow with, you know, there's got to be some basic objective qualities there. And I think that's actually just going the wrong way about how to describe aesthetic to begin with that objectivism, even if it's, even if it's a very attenuated objectivism, as it turns out to be. Secondly, the interesting thing about, you know, artistic experience and or aesthetic experience is not only do we disagree with other people, we disagree with ourselves. So, how often have you had this experience? You love a song. It's a new song. It's the hottest song. You don't even care whether your friends like it or not. You like it. And you're plugged into it everywhere you go. This makes me feel good. And it makes you feel And it makes you feel good. And then one day you wake up and you go, that song is really boring. It's, it's, it's as though its meaning has evaporated overnight. And... I no longer like it. And maybe, you know, later on, two or three years later, you hear the song and you go, I don't know why I ever liked it. Not only is it not meaningful, it's awful. 
So everyone has this experience. So aesthetic experience doesn't have, you know, this kind of objective certainty or guarantee about it, even within myself. So I'm, I can't be the objective guarantor of the meaning of a particular experience. So this, again, leads us away from some sort of objectivistic account. And again, I think it's extremely interesting how no amount of objective facts will necessarily convince anyone to have an aesthetic experience of a particular thing. You must like this book. Isn't it beautiful? And of course, this is what kills educations for many people, is that, you know, pedantic teachers insist you must like this piece of art. You must like this piece of classical literature, whether it's Chinese literature or you know, whatever tradition you're in, you know, it's the most important thing ever written. And like, well, no, you know, and it's not just because you're a lazy student or, you know, perhaps you're very well attuned to things. It just doesn't objectively exercise the poll. The teacher claims it does. And again, in theories of art and art production, a lot of emphasis is then placed on provenance of a work of art, so how it came about, you know, so okay, maybe you don't get it now, but if I tell you more about, you know, the, the, the period, if I tell you more about the artist, if I do a kind of quasi-psychoanalysis of the artist and say, oh, but you know, this, this, you can only understand this piece of art because Shakespeare really had a bad time with his parents. And if you understand why Shakespeare or that Shakespeare had a bad time with his parents, then you'll really understand King Lear better. You know, these are the types of providential accounts that people give, but don't necessarily make you like King Lear any better or worse. So these sorts of fluctuating types of experiences suggest that we can't really tie all of this to some sort of objective certainty. This is a song that I just came back to. I liked when the movie came out in the 1990s. I forgot about it. And just recently, maybe it was in, a, in anticipation of returning to Hong Kong, I went back and was listening to this song and then watched a whole bunch of these movies by a director who you will certainly know.
So I, I entitled this. So of course you all know this is from, I guess, an English trunking express, uh, the one car Y and, uh, very popular film. And it's an interesting, um, choice of music from a global aesthetic experience. So that's an original song by the Cranberries kind of introduced this sort of dream pop of the 1990s into Asia. So it's, it was really a, a seminal artistic moment, um, in a way. But of course, one of the things I was, I was just thinking is maybe it'll be interesting to a Hong Kong audience, maybe boring, you know, maybe it just shows Professor Buckley's very old fashioned, likes movies from the 1990s, you know, and earlier. Um, who knows? Who knows? So does that mean then that aesthetic experience and the meaningful experience of this song is merely subjective? Well, one of the things that phenomenology does, even though it's about experience happening to a subject, you don't want to just objectify subjective experience. Um, and you don't want to simplify away from many factors of subjective aesthetic experience um, that are more than just subjective. You know, so to try and mirror what I said about some of the flaws in the objectivist view, um, the same thing happens with the subjectivist view. So it's not just that people disagree, people agree. And people agree deeply. And by agree, I don't mean just have cognitive agreement. When you go to a movie, so maybe, maybe this is a more successful date, you know, and, and you go to a movie and, and both you and, and the person you're with are crying together about the movie. That's a common experience. It's not merely subjective. Somehow you could feel together something. So when we think of, of art as being a merely subjective experience, I think we miss something also about sort of the co-constitutive or social possibilities of um, art. Um, similarly, I even agree with myself from time to time. So even though I may sometimes like a song and sometimes dislike a song, there's some sort of continuity over time to my aesthetic orientation. Otherwise, I wouldn't be me. Now, it doesn't mean I'm not shot from time to time, that I really like something that I thought I didn't like and so on. But usually that can be, you know, if not accounted for, you know, suggests some somewhere there's an underlying continuity. It's not as though I'm absolutely subjectively constituted to like certain things and dislike certain things. They change. And yet I, I change as a person and yet somehow I remain the same. So this is really the problem of personal identity, but it's really sharpened in aesthetic experience. You know, how, how am I the same person and yet different from myself at times? That just shows that sub subjective experience should never be thought of merely subjectivistically, you know, and again, no amount of subjective reflection, psychoanalysis of myself, or, you know, even professional psychoanalysis is going to account for all my aesthetic experiences. Again, it just, it, it doesn't produce 
this unity of self, which is a unity that, of course, is is vulnerable and open to um, fragmentation. You're listening to Mind Matters. Professor Philip Buckley told us just now how to define the word aesthetic. Coming up, he will explore the idea of desire as a way to understand this deeper sense of aesthetic experience. One of the things I'm really suggesting is that analysis of aesthetic experience must place emphasis on the original meaning of the word, and by that I mean the Greek word aesthesos, which is to feel or to be touched by something. Hence, overly cognitive or mechanistic accounts of aesthetic experience are bound to fail. You know? And yet I, I think philosophers, and sometimes maybe elsewhere too, we still are, you know, embedded within kind of causalistic accounts. Um, you know, certain properties create certain feelings or cause certain feelings in a subject. Uh, you know, if you think of the advertising industry, it's kind of makes, spends a lot of money trying to find out what those feelings are. But in a way, many advertisements that companies have spent a lot of money on fail. You know, and I think that's partially because they're too inclined towards a mechanistic account of aesthetic uh, experience. Um, and um, a second outcome is aesthetic experience is one that is vulnerable. You know, it exposes a fundamental affectivity in humans. So we're open to aesthetic experience, and by being open, we don't control it. It happens to go back to that sort of passivity of the Heideggerian approach. Um, we have meaning. And we have loss of meat. And we can't put controls over that, particularly when it comes to um, artistic production. You know, there's no guarantee ever of an aesthetic experience. Um, and yet we can be open to them. And that involves risk. You know, and it really involves the risk of disappointments uh, and so on. And all of this has to, I think, be built into a, uh, a philosophy of art. Um, I think, thirdly, one of the outcomes of the phenomenological critique of traditional philosophies of art is that aesthetic experiences, while not objective, are nonetheless co-constituted. They take always, they take place, I should have said, always and necessarily in community. So there's no such thing as just an individual aesthetic experience. An aesthetic experience, even one in which it, you differ from the person next to you, is nonetheless co-constituted by some sort of underlying um, communal orientation or being with others. You could never give an account of your aesthetic experience solely on the basis of yourself. It always involves a being uh, with others. 
And um, the uncontrollability of aesthetic experience is, is what makes some people call them dangerous. You know, so it's not easy to predict or control aesthetic experiences. Um, and at the same time, because they're so deep, um, they're, they're meaningful um, and, and powerful. And so because they're uncontrollable, this makes people very nervous about aesthetic experience. Plato, the great philosopher at the origin of Western philosophy, was very nervous about the poets. And he's always complaining about the poets. The philosopher should be king, not the poets. Poets are dangerous because they make people feel things. And that can lead them away from this sort of cognitively based notion um, of truths. Uh, so I just, you know, again, trying to throw in a picture. Remember there, aesthetics then has this, this, this sort of um, risk attached to it. And so one of the things that's very, very common in, you know, philosophy of our histories is to go back to um, the Berlin Olympics of 1936. So the Berlin Olympics in Nazi Germany set the aesthetic framework for all subsequent Olympics. You know, so what we consider very beautiful now and moving often originated at these games. Here's the one example, the torch relay. So, you know, the, the important moment where the person runs into the stadium with the torch, this has nothing to do with the ancient Olympics and was not part of the Olympic Games until 1936. This is solely an invention of a Nazi aesthetic. But we still love it. Everyone waits for the torch bearer. And this, again, shows something about you know, aesthetic experience that how how deep it can be, and yet also it can be deep and contribute to pernicious social forms. Um, so this means we have to think about this vulnerability and this risk and this danger. I I wanted to say something about desire because desire is something that shows the same pattern of aesthetic. Uh, so it's kind of shifting focus, but it's not really getting away from a philosophy of art. Right? So desires show the same pattern of being neither objectively based or subjectively produced. So that's also very obvious. You know, everyone desires different things. <laughs> you can't say, oh, I desire that person. Someone next to you says, why? There's nothing desirable about that person at all or that idea, right? So desires can't be rooted in the objective characteristics of a person, right? Similarly, it's not merely subjective. It's not as though you just, you know, can desire anything you want. You can't talk yourself into desiring anything um you know you can't say oh 
I, I, I should desire that because my friend desires it. But you don't. You don't. And again, this can, this can lead to these, you know, hilarious situations in, you know, romances, you know, which are our aesthetic experiences where you can't understand why your friend likes that particular person. Can't you see all their objective faults? Are you crazy? Why are you going out with that person? You know, they're always doing this to you and they're always doing that to you. The person's like, well, I don't know. I just, I kind of like being with this person. Huh? So philosophy of desire and thinking about how our desires get constructed is a kind of analogous way of thinking about aesthetic meaning um, and aesthetic um, experience. And what I like about a kind of philosophy of desire attached to a philosophy of art is that it's less elitist. So everyone has desires. You know, I think art still, we have this tendency, you know, there are people who know more or less about it and, and so on. I've tried to broaden the notion of aesthetic experience to make it less elitist, but it still clings to that. But when it comes to desires, you know, we know everyone has them. And it's very, very hard to argue my desires are better than your desires. You know, we don't have a museum of desires that says this is real desire and that's, you know, low-class desire. Um, we may socially make those distinctions, but they're much harder to make. You know, or at least they're less ingrained than some of the distinctions we make within aesthetic um, experience. That was Professor Philip Buckley from McGill University in Canada. I'm Carol Meng. Join me next Sunday morning for more Mind Matters. Mm -hmm.